Hello, welcome to Physio Note Sounds. This is the podcast for pediatric physiotherapists. I'm Gavin Spence, joining you from Dubai. And as those of you who've tuned into this podcast will know, a lot of our episodes accompany courses, and the course particularly run online by Orthopaedic Research UK. And this episode is no exception. On the 12th of December, as part of the specialty series on the paediatric foot, we have a session on orthotics, a topic of a lot of interest to many of us, surgeons, physiotherapists, and a whole load of other specialties beside. So if it's going to be paediatric physiotherapy and orthotics, there is only one person on the team sheet. That person is Elaine Owen. And I'm delighted to say Elaine is not only joining us for the webinar, but is my guest on the podcast tonight. So, uh, Elaine, thank you so much for joining me. Great to have you here. It's a pleasure, as they say. Thanks for asking me. (laughs) The pleasure is all ours. Now, look, a lot of people will know you, particularly in the physiotherapy world. You are a physiotherapist by training, but there may be, you know, the odd one or two who have got through who have not heard of you and the teaching and the principles that you're well known for. So can you just tell us a little bit about your background? You're a physiotherapist by training, right? But you have ended up very much in a different sphere. So tell us how that happened. Yep. So I'm a physiotherapist by training. Originally, I started working with adults post-qualification. And then my husband and adult neurology, then my husband and I moved to North Wales where I tended to work in adult neurology, but there weren't any posts. So there was a post working with children, paediatrics, and with um, adults with childhood onset disability. So it was based out in the community with children of all ages and uh, with a child development team, because in the 70s, child development teams were um, big in everyone trying to get all agencies to work together and all disciplines to work together. So that was heavily promoted. So that was great. And I happened to join a marvellous child development team, absolutely brilliant group of people and was very lucky. But also I was covering um, special schools, which in those days, a lot of the children were residential. They were away from home for a whole term and long way from home and also a big hospital. Now, many people don't know that these hospitals actually existed in the UK. They were big hospitals where there were children and adults who had been essentially put away. Their families had been told that it'd be better if they went to the residential institutions and and often they were advised to not visit. And so I worked in one of those big hospitals in North Wales, where there were two wards of children and many, many wards of adults with childhood onset disability. My husband was a doctor, I was a physio, we'd worked in hospitals, and I went home after going to the interview and going around the hospital, and I said, gosh, I didn't realise that people with those levels of deformity and disability existed because they haven't been out in society and we haven't seen them. So that was a bit of a shocker, really. And it was the first, I was the first physiotherapist who had been employed in that hospital ever. So you can imagine the state of the residents there. Absolutely. It's kind of interesting hearing hearing you talk that way. You know, the, the institutions, those are gone. That sounds like a very dated system, but you're describing a multidisciplinary system a multidisciplinary team that I thought was a recent invention, but there you're saying in the 70s it was alive and well. That's what everyone sort of says to me because when everyone talks about family centered care, uh, collaboration, interdisciplinary teams, yeah, in the 70s we were doing that. We were doing it because there was a big move from the government for everyone to do it. Um, so, child development centers and child development teams were what were being organized at that time. 
And um, I agree over the years that I work within that system, because I work within that system until recently, uh, frequently managers and everyone laterally were trying to dismantle our interdisciplinary collaborative work, which we've been working with for decades. So it's very strange how things go around in circles and very sad, really. So then that led on, really, so I had this marvellous interdisciplinary team, absolutely fantastic psychologists, um, all sorts of you know, amazing skills, nurses, paediatricians, orthopedic consultants, education and social services, all of us within that, that system working together. But when I was working with the orthopedic consultants, of course, I just said, do you think there's any way that we could really prevent people um, actually ending up? with all these amazing contractures and deformities if we really do some very early intervention, because early intervention was big then. So we had a team that was working in that hospital with the adults, with, with on, childhood onset disability, and the team that went out seeing one-year-olds and the babies and right through their childhood. Mm-hmm. And in all the schools, because at that point, there were just special schools for the learning disabled were just starting. Those children had never gone to school. Only the children with physical disability went off to residential schools. So it was all like a new beginning and a, a new start, really. So the other thing that perhaps has influenced me also, I never used to mention it, but I do mention it now, that Rob and I, my husband and I, fostered a child with disability, and he's now 44. But um, we had um, him to stay with us regularly for respite. He was with us you know, very frequently, right through his childhood, basically. Yeah. So it gave me a lot of insights as to parents and how parents manage and how parents cope. Yeah. And I suppose that experience and also the experience you've described where you have children and adults with uh, what you said were childhood onset disability, that, again, is something that is kind of hard for those of us in paediatric practice to appreciate now. You know, we we tend to discharge them at 18. We don't really know what happens later. And I I guess what you had there was a a very useful insight into the challenges these kids face in the future, which I guess was the motivation for trying to do things better. Right. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So it was all about, you know, how do we prevent these things? But also with the orthopedic surgeons, really, I mean, none of those people in the hospital had an opportunity for surgery or anything. But it was also about how can we minimise, not saying surgery is bad. People often think I'm anti-surgery. I'm not anti-surgery. You know, we had children have multi-level surgery and and other surgeries. Um, Of course we did. But the point was, could we minimize the amount of surgery the children had because surgical experiences are very traumatic to those children and very difficult for families. I worked with Mr Evans, the British Society for Children's Orthopaedic Surgery, just before he passed away, awarded him the Sharard Medal for services to children's orthopaedics because Mr Evans was um, uh, very well known. He was the consultant who came across from Oswald Street to Bangor to do our clinics with us and I learned, you know, nearly all my paediatric orthopedics from Mr. Evans and subsequently from Mr. Roberts, also who then followed on to do the clinic. Um, but Mr. Evans was wonderful because by the time I met Mr. Evans, he had years and years of experience, you know. And yeah. he also was someone who said, well, if we could just prevent some of this, like, it'd be really helpful if we could prevent some of this. So, yeah, it was like a whole group of people, paediatricians, everybody sort of forging forward on, you know, this is what we see in the adults. Now let's just try and make sure that these babies we're treating don't get there. Yeah, yeah, sure. But, you know, phys- physiotherapists don't normally get as heavily involved in the the orthotic side as you do. I mean, obviously there's a certain amount of crossover, but you have really made that your own. I mean, how, how did that happen? That's somebody else's kingdom, isn't it? You've got to be a little bit careful where you tread sometimes. 
You definitely have these days. Um, but in the old days, <laughs> everything was run centrally from the government. And the government, basically, orthotists were coming in from private companies. And they wanted people who were employed by the NHS to do a lot of stuff like fitting and everything, right? I'm very involved. So, you know, the... The mastectomy nurses would do a lot of the fitting of breasts and, and they wanted anybody who was actually employed by the NHS to be doing a lot of that work. So we were actively encouraged to do huge amounts of that work. So when I walked into that hospital, uh, those residents had their own wheelchair. They had some standard wheelchairs. So we contacted the wheelchair service and had to get you know hundreds of wheelchairs ordered for them. And none of those residents had special shoes. They were all in plastic shoes from stores. I think there was one resident who had a very old clubfoot. He had special shoes for everybody else. So we had to get hundreds of residents shoes that would be wide enough for their feet because the learning disabled can have very abnormal feet. So just wide shoes or special surgical shoes or orthoses and shoes. So I worked very heavily with the orthotic department because they'd had nothing. So we brought the service into the hospital, took them to clinic, but by and large, the orthotists came to the hospital. We organised all those things, and then we got the rehabilitation engineers involved in the seating and everything. So in those days, it was not unusual for physios to very much take on that role of key working and organising all that and being heavily involved in that. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, so basically, we would go to the orthotist to cast the FOs, physios, all the physios would fit the FOs and set them up and do everything around the setting up of the FOs because that's the way the system worked in those days. But also, I then did, I've done specialist training. So because North Wales is a very rural area, we had three whole-time equivalent physios to cover 1,500 square miles. Yeah, so, yeah, okay, okay. All, all the special schools, everything, right, okay, the hospital, everything, right, okay, 1,500 square miles, and so I thought, how can we impact these children, and I decided one of the ways we could impact the children was through orthotic interventions, because once you had applied an orthosis, then there was a lot of carryover, and you could use the orthosis to actually do a lot of the treatment, and at the time, I was working, um, with the learning disabled and the psychologists, and the nurse I were working, were using a lot of behavioral approaches, again, being developed in the 80s, of behavior modification, positive reinforcement, backward chaining, shaping, and all verbal prompts. So we were doing that with the learning disabled to teach those skills. So I just used all those skills with orthotics to then use orthoses to do what we now call functional gait training. Right. So it was about using them and uh, to do a lot of the gait training that we now you know, call their yeah, functional gait training. So it's about using all those skills that I'd learned with this team to make some impact very early on into motor, into A, preventing contraction and deformity, but also embedding motor learning so that there was a, an early attempt to um, use more normal walking patterns and standing patterns and everything. And upper oh, limb, because at the time we had no OT, so we did the upper limb too. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the bathrooms and the commodes and the whole lot because we had no OTs. Uh, okay, there's, so there's, there's a pattern emerging here. <laughs> so but, we did everything basically, and we were the key workers because you know that thing about key workers, new key works the family. So for the phys- children with physical disabilities, the physios were the key workers. So we also did half the social work as well okay. and went in and out of the schools, running everything in the schools, with the standing frames and everything. Yeah, we did it all. <laughs> okay. So. <laughs> So at this time, you're talking, you know, 
70s into the 80s, this is also a time when gait analysis is really starting to get a bit of traction, you know, or at least it was in America. Was this on your radar at that time? Because I know gait analysis is very much central to what you teach now. Was that the case then? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so basically, um, as well as that, then it was it was in the sort of um, 1990s, in fact. Yeah, gait analysis and everything coming in. But Mr. Evans was from Oswald Street. And of course, Oswald Street has all our, the Orthotic Research Locomotor Assessment Unit with Mr. Patrick, Mr. Evans set that up and everything. So there was a centre in Oswald Street that had some of the first gate labs in the country. Yeah, And Oswald Street developed the video vector gate lab. So they not only had 3D labs, in fact, it was before 3D labs were really available in the UK, they had invented a video vector gate lab, John Stallard and Richard Major. And we used to take our children down to Oswald Street then to do a lot of the tuning on the video vector gate lab. And then they developed a system that could be brought out, a transportable system. And so uh, Robin Davies, who was our community pediatrician, was brilliant. He believed in everything we were doing because up until then we'd been using video cameras. But you have to remember when we first used a video camera to do gate analysis, it was huge. And the tape was like sort of cross, you know, and very expensive and et cetera, et cetera. So the first, we had some of the first video cameras in the Child Development Centre doing gate analysis. So Robin was very understanding of what we were doing. Mr. Evans, terribly supportive. So he actually got some money, Robin, the paediatrician, to allow us to have the video vector gate lab for one week a month. And then we had it in the centre, we set up as a gate lab. So we as Community Child Development Centre were doing gate analysis very early on. Yeah. At that time, I thought, this is going to be great. The whole world's going to be doing this soon. You know, the whole world, everyone's going to have a video vector gate lab and everyone's going to be able to do this. Because, of course, digital videos weren't easily available at that time. You know, so everyone's going to have video vector gate lab. It's going to be great. And it turns out still virtually no one has a video vector gate lab. But the thing people do have these days is digital video and slow-mo and frame-by-frame. So things have sort of reversed in a way. But, yeah, so then also we had 3D labs. So our children needed 3D gate analysis, went down to Street. But at that point, so, yeah, I wanted to train further. And so I did my postgraduate diplomas up at Strathclyde because Strathclyde was developing postgraduate diplomas. So I did postgraduate diploma in lower limb orthotic biomechanics. That takes a year. And then a postgraduate diploma in uh, clinical gait analysis. So, so was video, although it was you know fairly primitive, I suppose, and expensive and cumbersome, was it video that really, was that the game changer for you in terms of thinking about orthotics and kinematics? Yeah, I think other people who influenced it that time were people like, there was um, the Oswestry group and then there was the Strathclyde group, Barry Meadows and people. And Barry had just done his PhD on tuning FOs for children. And so I was very involved with Strathclyde and I was very involved with Oswald Street while working in North Wales, yeah. But it was that ability to use videos, slow things down and really watch movement very, very carefully, frame by frame by frame, and yeah. find out how much these fine adjustments that you made in terms of alignment and things could change walking. Because you could put, like, a two-degree wedge and change the SVA alignment of an orthosis, say, two degrees, it would... Not with all children, but some children drastically changed their walking. And also then we worked out, of course, once you really understood biomechanics and leverage and that, you can work out how the shoes affect walking, you know. I mean, yeah. we weren't just using AFOs, you know, we were doing all of those. So the other thing that we developed was joint clinics. I think these were hugely important. So the physios and the orthopaedic consultants did joint clinics. 
the physios and the paediatricians did joint clinic and the physios and the autists did joint clinic. So yeah. the physio then went to school and the physio went to home and the physio saw the children in clinic. So everything was tied together for the family. But it meant that actually there was a lot of sharing of knowledge because of those joint clinics. Everything was done together. Yeah. Um, and that was it. That was an important sort of development of knowledge transfer between professionals. And do you think that that knowledge transfer continues today, that it's better than it was? Or do you think we've lost some of that? I think probably some of it's lost. I think, you know, people constantly try to stop us having the joint <laughs> clinics often. Like, that's expensive, a joint clinic. Yes, it's not expensive in the long run because we're working together. And for families, it's really important. For families, you always have to come from the family point and the child point. For the families, they can see two professionals at once, you know. For the families, they can see the orthopedic consultant with the physio because it's likely that they're everything's shared, you know. So I don't know how things are in the NHS now. My only way I get to learn what's happening in the NHS sort of in the UK at the minute is through my work in London where I work privately last few years but kids come from the NHS and in some areas it seems very coordinate other places it just seems completely fragmented and it just seems a real postcode lottery as to whether things are working together or not yeah yeah it's, it's patchy sure so some of these kids then will come to you in London and what you have learned and what you teach uh, challenges some preconceptions, I think it's fair to say, isn't it? I imagine you get a lot of kids who have been told for years that, you know, it's very important that the AFO is at 90 degrees, not not more, not less, and all, all the rest of it. Your principles often challenge that. Can you just sort of walk us through how you go about tackling those kind of issues with individual families who already have certain preconceptions about what it is that you're going to do and you, and you want to do something completely different you know it's a, it's a big challenge isn't it it's a huge absolutely enormous challenge and what's remarkable to me is that it's still not understood in 2022 because the algorithms were published in 2010 and even then they make they're just sensible right I've been teaching my course for 20 years and the algorithms were practiced when I taught my course which I would have been teaching about seven courses a year with between 30 and 100 people on each course all around the world, I would practice it. I'd say to people, is this a good order of thinking? You know, and the algorithms came really from either way we were working and then asking people around the world, do you think it's a good idea? Do you think it's a good way of working? You know, so in 2022, I, I constantly find all sorts of professions who don't understand the algorithm for choosing the ankle angle alignment, Yeah. When Mr. Evans came to work with us, we were already using things like plantar flexion alignments, okay? Because the algorithm was already in my head anyway. It wasn't written down, but it was in my head. And he just said to me, Elaine, this is completely counterintuitive to me as an orthopedic consultant that you're using plantar flexion alignments and gaining calf length. He said, but it's working, so I'll go with it and I'll see how it goes, okay? So then he became one of the biggest advocates of plantar flexion, plantar flex alignments and um, ankle angle alignments where required and inclined shank to vertical alignments where required because he'd always been sort of very much in the things should be 19 vertical <laughs> until he came to work over in Bangor. And then he was one of the biggest advocates of not using 90 when it's contraindicated and not using vertical. It's unlikely to be indicated in any situation. Yeah. 
So, yeah, so 90 degrees. So basically it, it runs on some very simple principles, which I explained to the parent. The old one is very clear. We have it up in a poster mm-hmm. on the wall. So I say to them, let's measure the length of the calf muscle. It's short, okay? It's short. If we put this ankle at an angle that is not appropriate for the length of the muscle, they're either going to flex their knee when they're walking or they're going to deform their foot. So that's one reason why we don't need to put this foot at 90. If that's the case, we need to go to some level of plantar flexion for the length of the muscle, yeah? So that's the length, okay? So say the length is minus 10. It's really stiff. If we put this at minus 10, they're just going to fight against it. So we may need to back off a little bit for them to not deform their foot and to get their knee extension because they need their knee extension in gait. And then I talk about the foot and the foot deformity, you know. So there's just the three things. I explain it to parents. They understand it very, very simply. There's the length, there's the stiffness, and there's the foot posture, okay? That's what the three things you're taking into account when you're de- deciding what might be an optimum ankle angle of the FO. They understand it very easily, so I, I cannot understand why professionals, often professionals can't understand. Because parents can get to understand. There's It's on an algorithm, it's clear. Measure the length, work out the stiffness, have a look at the foot, and decide your angle. How can you go wrong? Well, uh, you remind me of a, a colleague of uh, mine and Michaelis's. He says in orthopedic surgery, and it's probably true in a number of professions, it's people think it's a science, but it's not a science. It has more similarity with religion. You know, we have certain beliefs. We have certain texts that we believe. We have temples. We have saints, sinners and heretics. We have rituals. And so you're challenging people's beliefs because a parent doesn't have belief. A parent just wants their child to be better. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. Because in fact, if I teach the students, they get it straight away, right? Because they're coming at it fresh. They get it straight away. That's obviously lame. Yeah, there's the length, there's the stiffness, and there's the foot, right? Okay. And it's a trijointed muscle that goes over the foot and over the ankle and over the knee. Yeah, we get that, Elaine. But if you try then teaching people who've been taught something different, But when I teach the course, everybody gets it very, very clearly. But you often have to go from the principle of teaching normal gait first. And it's only when they really understand normal gait and that normal gait isn't how they believed it to be, that it's different to how they believed it to be, that they then can really very clearly see the algorithms very, very clearly. Yeah. So maybe there's a similarity here. You know, you talked about early intervention for children. I mean, perhaps it's got to be early intervention for clinicians, isn't it? You know, otherwise. Well, we teach we teach undergrads now in the UK and across the world, really. In America, certainly all the um, piano schools, um, and so it's heavily adopted. Australia and lots of places, the algorithms. What I say to people, if you don't like my algorithm, write another. It's fine by me. You don't have to. You don't have to go by my algorithms. You know, they're well tested. They make sense. But um, you know, if you don't like them, write another. It's fine by me. Just have a rationale behind it. You got to have a rationale behind your algorithm that you can explain to a parent. So um, yeah, but they're they're being um, they are being heavily adopted because they are basic principles put in a thinking order. So you talked about using orthotics, you know, in, in some slightly counterintuitive ways to to achieve what you want to do in terms of function and in, and in terms of contracture prevention, but you know, ultimately we're still talking about plastic splints that that haven't really changed in the, the last what sort of 50 years or so i was just wondering what your thoughts are about where the future lies here p- particularly with orthotics and and technology 
becoming ever cheaper, more sophisticated. Do you think that's where some uh, big changes are going to come? Or, or is it are we still trying to sort of change hearts and minds with some more old fashioned technology at the moment? Well, carbon's the big thing that everyone, you know, everyone's into carbon and scanning and all sorts of things. OK, but it's got a long way to go in terms of actually for children in particular, I think, in terms of being as reliable perhaps as it needs to be for adults. It's very, very different with adults, isn't it? Adults who've had strokes or adults with other conditions, it's very different to children. The thing with orthotics is it's about applying forces to limbs. 3.4 systems is what you're applying, yeah? And often it needs volume. It needs the whole sort of encompass around a, a child's leg to get those 3.4 systems to work. I think the world of orthotics is, is more difficult these days because of children being so aware of the cosmetics and, and accessories, particularly in teenagers, you know. But the way you get around that is dosage, you know, because if you've got a carbon orthosis, still an orthosis, and a lot of our children have to have specially adapted footwear for that AFO won't work with many children to correct their gait or to allow them to simply stand up if the footwear's not adapted as well, yeah? yeah? Many children can have a simple orthosis or just a foot orthosis or whatever, you know, because we're not just talking about AFOs, are we? But AFOs clearly are the bigger orthosis. Children with spina bifida, they don't want to wear their orthosis, but they're clear that they have to wear their orthosis because without them, they can't stand and walk and protect their skin and their feet. And they normally have to wear them 100%, don't they? So I think it's about dosing. So certainly in different age groups, you would dose different depending on your goals, you know. So my aim is always when you start with a little one, would be by the time they're going to secondary school, they would have to wear it probably very little or not at all at school. They'd wear it for gait training outside school. Now that may not, you know, you can't, that cannot happen with all children because there's so many children who can't walk, they can't do anything without their airbows, you know, they can't function without their airbows. And those children are usually, they prefer to not be without them, just as a diabetic would prefer to not be without insulin, you know. But the yeah. point is they understand the need for them because they can't do their functions without Sure. So orthotics is about applying biomechanics to a limb. So it's never going to be, I, I can't see it ever being something that can't be seen, but whatever can be seen or, or function can be better for sure. I suppose the other area that technology has, has really helped with it, and you, you mentioned it earlier, is about video. Previously, where it was very difficult to get video recording, now everybody can do this. Is that something that you think will will make a difference in terms of, I'm, I'm thinking more about tuning orthoses. You know, people didn't, unless you've got a video, it's kind of hard to tune it. Exactly. I mean, basically, when I start the course, I ask everybody who works on a 3D lab, who's got a video vector lab, and who's got a video. And hardly anyone works on a 3D. Say you've got 100 people, there's one or two may work on a 3D lab, because that's rare, yeah? Who's got a video vector lab? Mm, really, not many either. That's the saddest one, because they're not that expensive for what they do. And how many are using video? And it's really surprising, a small number of people say they're using video. So what I say to people is, but surely in your department, you can't do it on your own phone. Of course, you can't store that data on your own phone, although people do, you know, but you shouldn't be doing that. There has to be some way of getting around the data control to see you to be able to use some simple digital camera to do this. And so really what I say to people is, you know, we need 100% of people just having some simple device provided for them to take little tiny clips where they can play it frame by frame or slow-mo. Because often it's that playing it slow motion and explaining to a child and explaining to a parent the difference. You can't see it by eye. 
that's why I say you can't see it by eye, no one can see it by eye, but it's explaining to the child the difference of how they walk and then the progression. So now you're doing that in your splints, but now look, you're doing that in your shoes now. And now, oh, you can do it barefoot now. So that progression that they, they can see, you can explain it with slow motion and you can stop and you can just really stop it still and explain everything to them. They can ask questions, you can explain. And that helps children and families take the decision, you know, that orthoses are a way forward for them, even though they don't want to wear the orthoses, really. But it's a way of achieving goals. Yeah. 100%. Listen, t- time's marching on. We There's so much to talk about. We, we've really only got a bit of time here to, to sort of scratch the surface. But I, I guess what, what people should know is if they come along to the webinar, it's on uh, December the 12th. We're going to have time to really sort of take a deep dive into this. You'll be there. You'll be able to um, field some questions, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, it's not going to be all on AFOs, is it? I mean, it's going to be on orthoses in general, alignments and everything, you know, and choosing alignments busting a few myths along the way perhaps and you know maybe a bit of controversy a few, a few arguments might break out that I'm all for that that's all good oh, definitely I mean one of the ones I put down when you asked me about my book bears and what to talk about <laughs> one of them is this thing about consultants will often challenge me through a parent um without discussing it with me they'll <laughs> often challenge me on why I have equalised leg lengths within an orthotic prescription, okay? And for me, it's a really important thing because they'll do all sorts of things if if they've got a longer and a shorter leg. And that would be one that I will bring up on the course, is that. Um, But it was something, I mean, you'll probably cut this bit off the recording quite right, but it's one thing I was just trying to get to grips with, is why in the UK there are very different opinions amongst orthopaedic consultants about that and why they worry about that. And, you know, when the principles of doing that, because that's one of the principles of orthotic uh, interventions that I'll talk about in childhood disability, onset disability, um, is one of the principles is equalising leg lengths because of all the problems that can occur if you don't equalise leg length. So, um, yeah, so that'll be in the webinar. So that'll cause some controversy, I'm sure. (laughs) That'll ruffle a few feathers. Excellent. We're all for that. Listen, Elaine, we're out of time. Fantastic. I'm so grateful to you for coming on, on the podcast and really, really, really looking forward to this one on, on December the 12th. It's, it's going to be a lot of fun. So to the audience, if, if you've listened to this and this has whet your appetite, come along on the 12th of December. It's going to be a lot of fun. You're going to learn lots. Elaine, once more, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much to everyone for listening. Thank you.